Before we begin today's show, we'd like to say thank you to our sponsors, Smokeball and Alert Communications. Welcome to the AVA Journal Legal Rebels podcast, where we talk to men and women who are remaking the legal profession, changing the way the law is practiced, and setting standards that will guide us into the future. Welcome. I'm your host, Lyle Moran. My guest today is Stacy Butler. Stacy is the Director of Innovation for Justice, which is a social justice innovation lab housed at the University of Arizona College of Law and the University of Utah School of Business. Stacy is also a law professor with more than two decades of experience in community advocacy and working to expand the reach of civil legal services. During this episode, we will discuss why Stacy created Innovation for Justice, the projects it has undertaken so far, and why it recently expanded to a second state. Stacy, thanks for joining me. Thanks so much for inviting me, Lyle. Sure. Well, Stacy, I was hoping you could start off sharing a little bit about your background before you joined the University of Arizona Law School. Sure. So I am an alumni of the University of Arizona Law School. I clerked for the Ninth Circuit after I graduated, did a couple of years in private practice, came back to federal court um, as an elbow law clerk for many years, um, but really starting in law school and um, throughout my legal career was really interested in community-based advocacy and did quite a bit of work in Arizona on the issue of pro bono services for the low-income population. Um, I also was teaching legal writing at um, U of A Law, and so I, I was starting to see um, that the doctrinal education of that law students were receiving was not necessarily aligned with what I was seeing in my work in the community with um, with the low-income population and their civil legal needs. And is that what prompted you to want to create Innovation for Justice? It is. I originally pitched to the law school the idea of um, having an access to justice class for students, and um, they said, that sounds great. Could you teach that? So I did that for a year, and um, students really responded, and the Self-Represented Litigation Network um, picked it up for their conference that year. And um, so I was just really fortunate to have a, a dean at U of A Law who said, you know, I think this could be a program. Can you turn this into a program? And um, I was really interested in innovation concepts and um, you know, we're talking about such a deep and wide justice gap. I thought there was a lot of room to explore how innovation and technology could um, bridge the gap. And so that that initial access to justice class uh, morphed into the program now known as Innovation for Justice. Great. And Stacy, what type of activities does the Innovation for Justice program engage in? So Innovation for Justice applies design thinking and system thinking methodologies to social justice problem solving. Um, so we host a number of courses in the lab that are all community engaged, project-based learning opportunities for graduate students from any discipline. Graduate students work in teams on uh, various challenges targeting um, you know, our three impact areas and, and the most common civil legal needs of the low income population. So we do a lot of work on the issues of uh, domestic violence and family law, uh, eviction and debt collection. Stacy, you mentioned domestic violence. How is the licensed legal advocate pilot program designed to potentially help victims in that area? So one of the impact areas at Innovation for Justice is how we can innovate services. And we're fortunate to have a presence in both Arizona and Utah, which are the two states that are creating these new opportunities for new, uh, new vehicles of legal service through reform of unauthorized practice of law restrictions. 
Our licensed legal advocate pilot is one of three pilots that we've developed in that regulatory reform space. It runs in Pima County with um, community-based advocates at a domestic violence service provider. They are um, first and foremost advocates for DV survivors. They do not have a JD. They do have specialized legal training, and they're able to give limited scope legal advice on domestic violence and family law issues to the survivors that they are already um, working with as they are embedded in this social service provider um, across other related needs like housing, education, uh, career services, child care. So the goal with these regulatory reform pilots is to get the legal services upstream in the community where people are most likely to seek help for what they identify as just a human problem. Uh, most people in this country don't necessarily recognize that a human problem can also become a civil legal problem. And so um, we're, we're trying to get new forms of legal service into the community where people are likely to go and receive help uh, and then train advocates to be able to, you know, they can't do everything that a lawyer can do, but um, they are trained to meet those really urgent, really critical, really pressing civil legal needs um, and, and get the intervention um, working for the people who need it uh, before the issue becomes court involved. And in that area right now, are there not lawyers that are taking on this type of work? Well, in the low income population, 86% of civil legal needs are going to receive inadequate or no civil legal help. So um, for survivors, 97% of DV survivors will have a civil legal need, uh, whether it's the need for a protective order or a divorce or a child custody. Um, and most of those survivors, particularly in the low income community, are not receiving services from attorneys. Mm. Now, how has the pilot program gone to date? It's great. It's it's one of the projects I'm the most proud of. It's really been um designed with and within community, um, led by community members, very robust community engagement on that project. Our advocates are, um, they, they finish their training, they're providing services in the field. Um, we are evaluating the pilot as it's running. So we're in the process of collecting data, um, but it's really been an incredibly rewarding project to work on. And um, we're, we're fortunate this year to receive funding to continue it for the next three years. And so we're um, we're looking forward to being able to publish the results of, you know, the early stage work and uh, hopefully scale and expand the pilot. And is there potential for the pilot to become permanent at some point? Yes, that pilot actually runs through an administrative order of the Arizona Supreme Court. So um, it is positioned um, structurally to become a permanent training opportunity for community-based advocates in Arizona. Right. And what role have students played in the pilot so far? So on any I4J project, students um, are always a part of the inception of the project. So um, with the licensed legal advocate pilot, as with any project we do in the lab, um, students become, they work together as a team. We do a lot of empathy work at the start of a project. So we get out and do a lot of interviewing the community. We talk to diverse stakeholders around, you know, engaged around an issue. Uh, we do a legal landscape scan that students work on. Um, students then take everything they've learned. I always say to them, this is not a class where you're all learning the same thing and being tested on it. You're all going to go out into the community and learn something different. And then we're going to come together as a class and you're going to be responsible for that knowledge sharing um, across the team. So we spend a lot of time just sharing what we've learned in the community and um, unpacking it. 
then students think really creatively around a lot of solutions. Uh, we do an ideation um, phase and try to come up with ideas that haven't been tested. Um, we've done systems mapping by that point. So we're pretty aware of in this ecosystem, where do we see capacity for change? Where are the bright spots and opportunities? Um, and then once students have developed some ideas that they think really do leverage uh, capacity for change in the community, we prototype those ideas and take them back into the community and test them. So students do that work as well, designing these low five representations of potential service or other ideas and um, interviewing with community members to get their feedback and then refining the ideas from there. And what feedback have you received from students in terms of the activities that they most enjoy participating in as part of the program? That's a really good question. Students love the empathy work. They love the work of getting out into the community and understanding the problem from the perspective of the users of our civil legal system. You know, we engage lived experience experts on every project. We compensate for them for their time. Um, lived experience experts work with us and our students when we have ideas in prototype and they provide feedback. Um, and, and that's always a really eye-opening experience for students to um, hear about these problems firsthand and, and be given permission to think really creatively around solution building and, um, you know, working across disciplines to try to come up with, with new solutions to these wicked problems. Um, I think students also really enjoy the interdisciplinary nature of the lab. Um, to date, we've had over... I think 12 or 13 disciplines come through the lab. We had five this past semester. And um, and now the opportunity to work with students from two schools has also been um, really, I think, great for our students. We hear off from them often that um, they've enjoyed meeting new people and um, learning about a problem across jurisdictional boundaries. Mm-hmm. Well, and you mentioned the expansion to Utah. You know, why did you decide to make that um, decision to expand operations to a second state? Well, as I mentioned, Arizona and Utah are the two states in the U.S. that are opening the door for regulatory reform of civil legal services. So that that presents a very exciting opportunity. Um, I4J from inception has been focused on um, innovation that can scale. And uh, we believe that if, if we can approach a problem not specific to a single community, but across jurisdictional um, boundaries that we can find commonalities in that issue and hopefully build a solution that can scale across jurisdictions. So having a presence in two states at the outset of a project and being able to explore a problem um, across two states at the outset is really, really exciting. I think a lot of legal innovation um, ends up being very small because each court has its own rules and each state has multiple courts. And um, so you can have a really great innovation in one little pocket of the legal world, but um, sometimes it's very difficult to to replicate it in other places. Um, so for example, we just are finishing up a, the kind of the first, first stage of a housing instability project, looking at the issue of housing instability in both Arizona and Utah, looking at the capacity of regulatory reform in Arizona and Utah to provide new types of legal services to people in those states experiencing housing instability. Um, And it's been really interesting to see what the commonalities are in those two states, that um, housing instability for people in both states is, uh, is both, you know, harmful and has very similar downstream consequences and um, that the capacity for change is very similar and that both states are allowing this opportunity for non-lawyer services. So it's just, it's a really, it's a really exciting frontier to be in, um, to be able to look at projects in both the reg reform states at once. 
Well, when you mentioned housing stability, I saw that your program also developed previously a cost of eviction calculator. You know, what role is that calculator playing in these housing issues? So our three impact areas at I4J are to innovate services, systems, and structures. And so when we talk about housing, um, we believe that innovation needs to happen in all three of those spaces. So um, we're in the process now of proposing housing instability legal advocates in Arizona and Utah. Those would be people with specialized training, but not a JD who can provide legal advice to tenants experiencing housing instability. Uh, We've done some evaluation of the viability of online dispute resolution for resolving housing disputes. That's innovation focused on the system, the civil legal system. And then the cost of eviction calculator is focused on innovation to structure. So we know that um, services are only going to get us so far. Improving the system is only going to get us so far because tenants are navigating housing instability in a landscape that is shaped by the laws that form the structure of the landscape. So, um, Both Arizona and Utah have very rapid and rigid eviction processes. There's very little time for tenants to take action once they're served with an eviction complaint. Um, And so we're trying to amplify for decision makers um, what those sorts of laws and policies mean to a community and what their downstream effects are. So our cost of eviction calculator allows any community in the country to enter the number of evictions in their community or the number of anticipated evictions in their community. And the calculator will generate a, a number for you about what your community is spending post-eviction to take care of your evicted population across uh, medical care, mental health care, child welfare, juvenile delinquency, and some of these other uh, downstream consequences that people experience when they lose their housing. Um, And the goal is to empower advocates to say to decision makers, we need to change the laws around eviction because with these laws in place, um, we are spending this much as a community to deal with our eviction problem. It would be better to to re-examine how the laws can protect tenants, to spend money upstream, to keep tenants housed, to adopt policies that encourage tenants to stay housed. That would be a, a cheaper, more effective, and also more humane solution than what our community is doing right now in the eviction space. Great. Well, we'll be back after a short break. Smokeball is the cloud-based practice management software that lets you run your law firm like a well-tuned business, automatically record your time and activities, Easily organize documents and conversations from every matter, complete and send documents quickly with a vast library of preloaded forms, and work efficiently with robust Microsoft Office integrations. Smokeball puts the power of anytime, anywhere at your fingertips. Schedule your free demo today at smokeball.com. As the largest legal-only call center in the U.S., Alert Communications helps law firms and legal marketing agencies with new client intake. Alert captures and responds to all leads 24-7, 365 as an extension of your firm in both English and Spanish. Alert uses proven intake methods, customizing responses as needed, which earns the trust of clients and improves client retention. To find out how Alert can help your law office, call 866-827-5568 or visit alertcommunications.com LTN. Welcome back to my conversation with Stacy Butler the director of the Innovation for Justice program. Stacy, in one of your previous answers, you mentioned online dispute resolution, and I know your program undertook what is called the first usability evaluation of ODR in the U.S. Can you share a little bit about that project? 
Sure. That's one of uh, my favorite I4J projects. And I think part of the story of how we ended up uh, expanding into Utah and the state of Utah, and particularly the, the judiciary of Utah has just been incredibly innovative and really um, has been focused on how innovation can improve um, quality of life and community. So the um, the Utah state courts are the only court in the nation that have built their own online dispute resolution platform. And they're really I think should be commended for that uh, undertaking. It was designed to work um, to be applied in debt collection cases in their small claims court, their justice court. So those are largely payday lending cases. Uh, And they asked us to come in and evaluate the online dispute resolution tool um, because uh, what they were seeing in the early stages of piloting online dispute resolution for payday lending was that um, the tool was working very effectively for plaintiffs in payday lending. These are, you know, there were less than 20 frequent filer plaintiffs filing payday debt collection, payday loan debt collection in the pilot jurisdictions. Um, They were all onboarding very easily into online dispute resolution, uh, but only about one third of the defendants who were receiving summons in those debt collection cases were onboarding into online dispute resolution. Um, And then um, once, even when both parties were, in the platform, only about 50% of the cases were being resolved. Utah's goal for online dispute resolution was to make it easier for everyone to engage with the civil legal system. Um, they were referring to it as pajama court, meaning they hoped people would now be able to, people who previously could not engage with the civil legal system because they couldn't take time off work or they couldn't find childcare, um, would now be able to, because the court was in their, the palm of their hand on their smartphone, would be better able to engage and and assert their rights and defend legal actions. So um, our team came in to do a usability evaluation of that online dispute resolution tool, uh, which in a nutshell means we put the tool in the hands of people in the low-income community. We asked them to use it, and we we measured um, you know, how long it took them to complete tasks, where they had critical errors, what their rate of post-test satisfaction was, um, and then based on our findings from that baseline study, we redesigned a prototype version of the online dispute resolution tool and tested it again um, using that same framework. So the goal with uh, usability or user experience methodology is to engage users in the design and function and operation of a technology to improve the technology, to make it easier for its users. And I know your report included a series of recommendations of how Utah's ODR platform could be improved. You know, what type of feedback did you receive to the report from those officials in Utah? So the Utah court has been incredibly receptive. I mean, really any innovation suggestion. I mean, they've just been so thoughtful and um, so committed to advancing access to justice in the state. Um, One of the, I think, interesting recommendations that came out of that project had nothing to do with technology. It had to do with the paper summons that defendants are receiving in payday lending collection cases. Um, the, The ODR platform, the online dispute resolution platform, had a very complex URL. So users were dropping off because they couldn't move from paper to platform. So one of our recommendations was use a really simple URL. We also recommended put a QR code on the summons because that's a call to action for users. I need to go online. I need to do something. Um, And after that recommendation came out or those recommendations came out, uh, the Utah State Court actually adopted statewide summons forms for um, for all cases, including debt collection, um, that include QR codes and simplified URLs that direct defendants to the self-help materials on the Utah State Court's webpage. So it sounds like from what you're describing... They were very responsive to try and improve their system. 
Yes. Incredibly responsive. Very, you know, the reason to do an evaluation like that is not to feel bad about the thing you've built. It's to learn about how to, to make it better. And I think they were very responsive and um, very receptive to, to the recommendations and, and very eager to improve the tool. Great. Now, I know medical debt is another area that I understand Innovation for Justice will be focused on um, in the coming months. Can you share you know, what type of work um, the program will embark on in that area? So medical debt is an area that we're doing a lot of work in. Um, debt collection is the most common type of civil case in the U.S. Medical debt is the bulk of or the, the majority of debt collection is uh, medical debt collection. In Utah, it's a, it's a small majority. It's 36 percent of all debt collection cases. Again, when we look across these three impact areas of services, systems, and structures, um, we when we do the evaluation of a tool like online dispute resolution for debt collection cases, that's a, a systems-focused innovation. Um, when we talk about how to innovate services for debt collection, specifically medical debt, um, we have two pilots approved in the Utah Sandbox that are both training, again, community-based advocates. They don't have a JD. They do have specialized legal training. They're going to be certified to provide limited-scope legal advice to people experiencing medical debt. Um, they are community healthcare workers and debt counselors, all from the nonprofit sector, again, with this goal of intercepting people when they have a human problem and helping them with it um, before it becomes a court-involved civil legal problem. Um, And then when we talk about the structural innovation for medical debt, in May of this year, we'll be publishing a medical debt policy scorecard. uh, And that is, again, focused on let's look at the laws that um, are the structure around which this system operates and how, what are the the ramifications of the laws we have in place. So the the scorecard will inventory the medical debt policies of all 50 states, uh, will rank states based on their consumer protections, again, with the goal of, you know, how do we use technology to aggregate these big sets of law or these big sets of data, put it into the hands of advocates in a useful, transparent way so they can call for change. Hmm. Now, you've mentioned the Utah Sandbox a couple times you know, what do you think about that approach to legal innovation that Utah has taken with having a sandbox? I think it's great. And I think there's multiple ways that states can get there um, in terms of adopting innovation in their states. So our goal is to um, to make sure that we have innovations happening on any rail that a state is going to put in place. So Utah has a sandbox. We want to get an access to justice innovation in the sandbox, and our medical debt legal advocates will do that. Um, Arizona, our li- licensed legal advocates in Arizona um, are operating under administrative order. So we want to be able to show states, if you want to adopt regulatory reform of unauthorized practice of law restrictions, you could do a sandbox. You could do an administrative order. Um, our housing stability legal advocates are uh, our proposed proposal is to embed them in the existing licensed paraprofessional programs in Arizona and Utah, make that training available um, within that track um, so that if there are states that are never going to do a sandbox and maybe their court doesn't want to issue a bunch of AOs approving various pilot efforts, um, but they are going to create tiered legal services like licensed paraprofessionals, uh, we want to have research and projects out in the world to say, If you do that, there is a space for access to justice, for innovative approaches to access to justice in those licensed paraprofessional programs. And so it sounds like, you know, in these states, the examples we talked about, Utah and Arizona, you know, you're putting forward initiatives that work with the regulatory schemes they've embraced. You know, does your program recommend that states take a certain approach to regulatory reform? I 
think it's too soon. This is such early days for regulatory reform. I think it's too soon to say one approach versus another is going to be more effective. Um, I think there's still a lot of ways to to design and launch both sandbox and licensed paraprofessional efforts. Um, and I think, you know, courts have had this longstanding ability to, to adopt new policies and pathways through administrative orders. So um, we want to encourage states to, to build to fit. What, what does their community need? Um, how do they get there? What tools do they have in their toolbox to get there? Right. And in extending your program to a second state, were there any regulatory hurdles you had to overcome to be able to do that? <laughs> Administrative and bureaucratic hurdles, yes. Um, regulatory hurdles, I don't, I don't think so. And nothing is coming to mind. Um, you know, it's certainly we're fortunate that we're an all virtual lab that um, makes the, the work across two states a lot easier. Our teams meet in Zoom, they collaborate in Slack and Google Drive. Um, but, you know, there really wasn't a playbook for how to run a, a cross-state innovation lab. So um, there has been a lot of creative problem solving, but I'm not sure that um, any of it was was forced upon us through regulation. And what advice would you have to others in legal academia who might want to do some sort of cross-state project in another area? Um, you know, how would they go about moving forward with something like what you've done? Well, I think the secret to I4J's success in expanding into Utah has been really robust support from both states. Um, we've been really fortunate to have champions in both Arizona and Utah that want to help us succeed um, in both states. And so I think, you know, building out your network and um, amplifying your work with people beyond your own community, encouraging discussions about um, what could be accomplished um, if if people work across state lines um, and, and I think being open to, to the needs of, of wherever you're working. And we really, we really try to um, identify issues and projects that um, are responsive to, to what the community is asking for. I think that's something that um, we can do a better job of in the legal profession is, um, is listening to the potential users of the system and, um, and trying to, bring justice to them instead of um, expecting them to come to us. And Stacey, I know your expansion to Utah happened somewhat recently, but I'm wondering if you could foresee down the line potentially expanding to another state if that state were to open up its legal marketplace like Arizona and Utah have done. While we're sort of geographically located, as much as a virtual lab can be geographically located anywhere, you know, we are geographically located in Arizona, Utah, but we're already a lab that does projects in other jurisdictions. We have a project running right now in Michigan. Um, so I love I love building out the I4J community. I love having students with different perspectives, team members from different disciplines. So I, I certainly wouldn't say no to um, an opportunity to continue to grow into other states and other schools. Um, it's, you know, it's a resource intensive um, lab. And so it will depend on um, just you know, what our capacity is and what resources are available to us as we look ahead to whether we grow and scale and in what direction. Great. Well, Stacey, thank you so much for joining me today. Thank you. I really enjoyed the opportunity to speak with you and thanks for taking the time to learn more about I4J. Sure. I also wanted to thank our listeners for tuning in. Please be sure to rate and review the Legal Rebels podcast on your favorite podcast listening service. I'm your host, Lyle Moran, signing off. 
If you'd like more information about today's show, please visit LegalRebels.com, LegalTalkNetwork.com, subscribe via iTunes and RSS, find both the ABA Journal and Legal Talk Network on Twitter, Facebook, and LinkedIn, or download the free apps from ABA Journal and Legal Talk Network in Google Play and iTunes. The views expressed by the participants of this program are their own and do not represent the views of, nor are they endorsed by, Legal Talk Network, its officers, directors, employees, agents, representatives, shareholders, and subsidiaries. None of the content should be considered legal advice. As always, consult a lawyer. Thank you.